Welcome to Bonafide, conversations in good faith about faith with Jonathan Storman. We have a breaking news story to tell you about. A plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center. Today we've had a national tragedy. Christianity, it's under siege. Study after study shows Christianity is not the force it once was. But we are going to protect Christianity. Even before COVID, a growing number of Americans were moving away from organized religions. The group called Religious Nuns has steadily grown. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Bonafide. Uh, This is Jonathan. I am here with my friend Adam, who went to Harding together um, and then ACU kind of in the same time uh, with um, you were studying Bible and to get your Masters of Divinity. That's correct. And we've, we've actually taken a shot at recording this podcast. You were actually my first podcast to record. Now I've done like five or six. And... Uh, we had to cut it short, but also I went back and listened to it. And I was like, man, I sound like a jerk. <laughs> um, and I totally disagree. I did not go back and listen. So maybe if I did, I would. But <laughs> yeah. I certainly didn't feel like that at the time. Well, so I, I, um, here's what I have learned in the five or six that I've done since then with people that I think I have a strong enough relationship with that we can have, um, conversations that are direct but i've also learned from these conversations like um one of uh you remember todd yeah yeah okay, we so, were we weren't super close but he was theatron yeah like, and he's super funny he's super, still yeah. super funny well todd and i did a lot i mean we did a lot together at, at harding and i was surprised to see that he um had become an atheist. He was surprised to see he had become an atheist. And one of the things he said, I can't remember if it was offline or on the podcast was Jonathan. I never wanted to come here. I never wanted to end up here. And that has given me great sympathy for y'all. Um, because there, there is a part of being on the outside of something that you're prone to misunderstand it. And, um, you know, it, it it seems like people lose their faith for a variety of reasons, but most of the people that I'm having kind of conversations with actually had a faith of some kind of substance and weren't looking to lose it. Um, in fact, uh, they still feel haunted by it in some ways or, or anyway, I don't know what how you would describe that, but I think we'll have a different conversation now that I've had like five or six other ones. So I, I may have buried, or I may have buried the lead here or get given away <laughs> too much, but so you go to Harding, you're a Bible major. What you're, yeah. you're like a first generation Christian too, aren't you? I, well, not really. So my parents sort of left the church and then came back. Okay. Um, and so it was almost like they, they kind of hit reset. My my dad's mom was actually part of a very conservative Church of Christ in Ohio, um, though that played no role in me being a part of the Church of Christ. And my mom, her family was part of some very, very small uh, uh, Christian sect in primarily just in Missouri. Um, and so she kind of left that. I don't know that they would have ever said that they were agnostic or atheist, but they had essentially left the church. And 
we lived next door to Richland Hills Church of Christ, now the Hills, and um, and just sort of started going there as, um, I, I, I really don't know why. I can't like look back and say, here's here's why we started going there. Um, though and we you had a never... positive experience there, right? Do I remember so, that correctly? Yeah, there was a, uh, I, there was a, there was a Baptist church nearby and I went, went to a lock-in and I remember just being, being really moved by, by my experience at that, at that lock-in in like seventh grade. Mm. But I had never questioned, I never had any idea that there was anything to question about Christianity, you know, growing up in the suburbs in Fort Worth, you don't encounter different voices. There's different kinds of Christianity, but there's really nothing else. So it never occurred to me that there'd be something to question. And then um, me and a buddy were running around the uh, the church parking lot and the youth minister came out and we started talking and then just kind of got hooked in there. And, and that was a, that was a place for me to belong. And so it meant, it meant a lot to me. It was, it just kind of formed who I was in throughout high school. Uh, and so that's when I ended up deciding to be a youth youth pastor. At, and so you go to Harding. Were you a youth mm-hmm. ministry major at Harding? Yeah. Yeah, I did youth ministry. And then uh, learned enough there to know that I didn't, didn't feel comfortable teaching quite yet. Just like learned enough to just kind of sow some seeds of doubt. But I thought that they were things that I could kind of learn through or work through. Um, and then ended up at... Uh, at ACU doing Masters of Divinity. Um, and after ACU, I actually spent a year out in Phoenix as a youth minister. But I would say second year at ACU is really when I started feeling that I was, I don't know, being headed towards agnosticism. And it was it was after I left that church in Phoenix. So this is probably a four to five year process for me to go from like um, entertaining agnosticism to really accepting that that's where I was in my life. And so we talked another time about being haunted by it, by not wanting to, like, like not seeking this out. Like I never had in my mind, like, oh, I want to be agnostic. Um, but that is, I guess, I, I don't know, that's what compelled me. But through that time, I was, I was definitely haunted by that and wanting to be able to just go back to when I believed. Is there anything in particular that kind of started the, um, I don't know if you'd call it erosion or just um, the deconstruction process where you, I think it's it was textual criticism, honestly. I mean, it, it came down to starting to erode what was the primary basis of my faith, and that was just believing believing that the Bible was was you know written written by God that He reached down and wrote it through through all those guys and um, and then reading 
parallel stories from the time and and criticism that would that would date the texts and realizing that that's just not it's just not possible or if it was it was some massive trick by god that didn't make any sense to me like the bones of the dinosaurs are there to test us that kind right. of trick by god yeah right so like, if people don't know any sense i would imagine me. that some of the people that are listening are like parents or grandparents uh, who don't have a Bible degree, don't know textual criticism. Can you describe that for them? No, I cannot really. This has been over a decade since, yeah. since I would have called myself a theologian. No, I would say, um, you know, looking at the way I desc- that I would describe it when people ask is that you can look at um, writing from the 1800s as just like just an English speaker, not a student, nothing. You can look at writing from the 1800s and say, this was not written today. You can just tell by word usage and context that there's no way, unless somebody was trying to mimic exactly how they would write in the 1800s, that it was not written today. And uh, biblical scholars can do the same. And now I was never smart enough to do that, but they can look at those texts and say that, and they can look at Texts that are probably earlier that uh, that biblical texts were were copying from for for some stories. So um, yeah, a, a good example of this would be like Isaiah has like three different parts. The the book yeah. of Isaiah has like three different parts to it. Um, one one popular text criticism that I think I, I can say. Um, that might help people make sense of it is so like Jesus says parables in one gospel one way and in another gospel another way and um, so you got you know what they call the synoptic problem that you're going to learn about when you're a Bible major where you know the gospels um don't fit the modern historical categories exactly. Like, now, I think, obviously, I I believe, and I actually think that's uh, a, an evidence in the favor of it being, like, real, because they don't line up perfectly. And the people who compiled the Bible weren't trying to, like, hide that. Like, they're like, put it in, you know, like, the... They're not. There was no like mastermind a thousand years ago who like tried to scrub it all away. Yeah, and I don't think that textual criticism um, is a reason to not believe. I don't. I and it opened that, that door for you originally. Yeah, yeah. That it's what just opened up to to questioning. I'd never even thought to question before then. Um, and that's what that's what opened that door and made me think this can't be the basis of my faith. Yeah, at least. I, and there I has agree. to be something more substantial. So I would hope that everybody who is listening, who has any kind of like responsibility for Christian spiritual formation, would pay attention to this because I think often, like for example, conservative religious people think they're getting cred by saying. Um, you know, we we believe the Bible is inerrant, um, and the Bible never claims that. 
I think the Bible is like it's perfect for what it's trying to do. I mean, that's that's me with you know eyes of faith and my pastor add on. But what happens, you know, and I, again, I'm not um, trying to use your story as a warning. I'm trying to say. Well, I guess in some ways I am in this regard. Like I'm, I'm raising five kids. I think the Christian faith is true, um, but I also think if you try to hand off to another generation guardrails around the Christian faith that aren't really integral to it, and those guardrails start to get deconstructed, then it it is problematic, right? Is that fair, Adam? I think that is, I think where I got to, you know, you're talking about guardrails and I was thinking, I started thinking, do I find a reason not to believe? And I eventually got to the point where I was like, no, I need to find the reason that I do believe. Like just the fact that I grew up in, in the suburbs of Fort Worth, that shouldn't be the reason that I assume Christian faith and I need to decide what's like, like I had to evangelize to myself and I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't convince myself at least to the degree to say that, I don't know, to say that it, I don't want to say that it doesn't matter, but I don't, I don't know to what end. I, I don't know why. I don't know why I believe in what, in what is to be, gained or lost. So one of the interesting things out of this podcast for me is on some, sometimes when I'm talking with my friends and, and this really is like a, a burden on me, like, uh, because I care about you guys. I really do. Like I, I'm not just trying to blow, waste daytime here. Um, and I think, I think, faith makes life better and makes you better at life. And ultimately I think it's true. And so part, part of the, the sadness for me is uh, like realizing, okay, you guys aren't like trying to do this. This happened to you. This was not. Um, did you think that? I did. Is I did. You did. Well, I think I told you offline, like, you know, doing college ministry for so long, a lot of times people walk away from faith because they don't like the demands Jesus had on their life. Because Jesus does ask things of you. He asks, he, you know, it's not just a cultural thing. It's like you're bumping into some kind of reality here and you don't get to make it up. Um, but with almost to a person, the people I've talked to, the five or six people that I've talked to, or, or you're embarrassed by it. That's another thing that, that mm-hmm. I, I've seen yeah. people like, you know, I don't want to be painted with the same brush those people are and, and, and you distance yourself far enough. So that's another thing that I would get a little frustrated with. But I haven't found that with y'all. But the one of the more surprising things is that you put so much of your life into this and now it seems almost like meaningless. Like it just doesn't seem mm-hmm. like it's it it matters. And so at some points I just want to like shake you guys and be like, you got, you're, you know, you're going to die. Right. And what, what comes what after is, you die? What is that? What does that matter? This is, this, this is another step in, in my process is coming to grips with, with heaven and hell. Um, I mean, I think that all of us 
who are raised in evangelical Christianity go through that. Um, and even, even from a relatively conservative, like biblical interpretation, I just don't buy like the modern story of heaven and hell. Tell me more about that. What, what seems implausible? Well, I mean, so what I'm talking about is you, you do whatever is right, be Christian, baptized, whatever, whatever you call like the thing that makes you cross that line and you go to heaven. Um, or if you don't, then, then you go to hell and it's this eternal damnation and, uh, and constant suffering or whatever. I think that's kind of the, the popular mindset, probably Uranus in Greek, um, is never referenced in the new Testament right. as a place that a human would go. Right. Um, I think the closest they get is whatever, whatever is used for paradise for the guy next to Jesus on the cross. But there's, mm-hmm. there's really not much to indicate that, that there's a heaven, at least in my interpretation that there's a heaven, like, like the vast majority of Western Christians imagine that I can't speak for other traditions. And then, and then hell, I think there's, there's even less, but I haven't, I never got quite as far into that, but yeah, I just, I just don't buy the heaven and hell narrative. So I have less to be afraid of. So a lot of people throw out like the, the Pascal's wager thing, which is to say um, that the reward of this relatively small sacrifice of being a Christian is so enormous and the risk of not is so enormous that you might as well just go ahead and believe. I'm not a big fan of Pascal's wager. I think that's like, um, uh, either if, if it's not true, I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, in Paul's words, we're to be pitied above all fools. Um, so in terms of a, after, after this life, Thing. Sell me on why I should be a Christian. Are you asking me to preach about <laughs> heaven? So, okay, I will. I appreciate Maybe that. there's not enough time for that. But if you yeah, have like a... That's right. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles to... Um, okay, so... I still have we... three Greek New Testaments. They're, on yeah. my, they're in my <laughs> living room. I have one. Um, although in my, my Greek final, in my final semester at Harding, Dr. Neller takes me aside and says, you know, your John chapter 20 sure reads a lot like the NIV. And I was like, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just does. that good. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm really, yeah, I'm really that good. Um, so everything we know about heaven, take the, take the Bible aside, um, mm-hmm. Because the Bible is written after the primary source that we have about heaven, which is the empty tomb. And the best historical sources, uh, Christian and non-Christian, say there was probably an empty tomb. Now, um, a lot of secular historians, one of the most common refrains you'll hear is um, something happened. Something weird happened. We don't exactly know what it is, but people don't raise from the dead. So, so they have an a priori, a, a priori faith assumption that it's a closed universe, you know, bound by kind of scientific mm-hmm. observations. That doesn't happen. But if you have 
any kind of opening to the possibility that there this world was made by God who is not bound by the world, then it does open up the idea that God could have raised Jesus from the dead. And that's basically everything we know about heaven. God raised Jesus from the dead, bodily resurrection. So heaven in the last couple of hundred years has been in America known as as something like the opposite of what it is supposed to be. But it is bodily resurrection of everyone, that God will restore everything back to what it was meant to be. So God will raise our bodies from the dead, um, and God will restore heaven and earth and bring them together. So in Revelation 21, you know, heaven and earth are not these polar opposites, but they're like, uh, they're made for each other, like a bride made for a husband. And um, in fact, every marriage is really a sacrament pointing to that. Um, So heaven and hell are, hell is not the counterpoint to heaven. Earth is. Hell is like where it's not, where that's not a part of that story. Um, So if God is goodness, then the absence of God is that. If God is light, then the absence of that is dark, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But it is kind of the, I think, the almost universal human longings for um, eternity or, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the, the loss of connection we feel at the death of a loved one is not permanent. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not death, not life, not anything. And I mean, that's, I think Paul does put some more flesh on the resurrection and its implications in first Corinthians. But, uh, and Jesus talked more about hell than any biblical prophet. So, you know, they, they, they are kind of, you can't do the Jesus thing without talking about what happens after you die, but that's it. Can I, can I do the counterpoint to my thing and then just see Mm -hmm. if it, I'm going to argue with myself for a second. (laughs) So one of the reasons that heaven and hell have been like uh, kind of um, poo-pooed on in a secular age is because Sigmund Freud, um, he said that it was all wish fulfillment. Um, And this guy named Feuerbach, the famous atheist named Feuerbach, he said that we don't want to die, so we invent a God that... um, makes it to where, you know, we don't die forever. Mm-hmm. It's wish fulfillment. And that that sounds pretty damning and possibly true. Uh, but the counterpoint to that is that the Jews believed in God for over a thousand years without any idea of heaven. Um, I'm doing a Bible study on Wednesdays with people who aren't believers anymore and we're in Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes doesn't believe in heaven because there's no evidence of heaven at that point. Yeah. So they, they worship God, not for what God would give them, but primarily because God was worthy of worship. And so I think that pushes against Freud. Um, and also like Jewish people weren't predisposed to believe people are going to rise from the dead. Like, that's not what they, 
it's not like ancient people were just these you know backwater country bumpkins who are like you know there's they 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 perceive the world differently but they sure didn't expect people to rise from the dead didn't the didn't some ideas of heaven start coming about in that kind of intertestamental period like maccabean that was not a yeah that was not a completely unique idea once once jesus died i believe i don't that i could be incorrect about that but no you're on to something they they believed in the resurrection at the last day and that was an intertestamental development with the maccabean you know all the injustice and stuff and so they're starting to have a more developed eschatology. My point is that for a thousand years they didn't. Right. Like okay. I think, and Karl Barth said the greatest ex- proof of the existence of God, which you can't prove the existence of God um, or his non-existence, obviously, is Karl Barth said it's the existence of the Jew that in spite of all these different incredibly difficult you know things the jewish people still not only survived but have thrived mm-hmm. and that they didn't believe in heaven so uh, all that to say i was getting to do you think it's it's your age like what wh- does heaven or hell or anything after life not cross your mind for the last like oh, 10 years all the time i mean going through um my my father dying this summer um that that hits that hits real hard wanting to longing to longing to believe that there'll be a day that i get to talk to him again um mm-hmm. definitely like Thoughts of afterlife cross my mind all the time, um, and wanting wanting that to be true, it would provide a lot of relief. Yeah, I'm losing my dad too. Uh, I hope not soon, but yeah, I mean, this this is kind of the thing that I, you know, I know I'm I'm not God and I'm not responsible for other people, but. I feel like our the the Christian faith is is good news because of stuff like this. Like it, you don't have to despair in the face of death. In fact, you can lay down your life every day, uh, trusting God to hold it securely. As I'm understanding y'all, my friends, um, that's the stuff that I'm like, man, is this not? moving or important enough to i gosh i don't know from from a philosophical perspective the christian faith the to provide that kind of hope in the midst of whatever pain may be a part of your life is is incredibly attractive but it feels completely invaluable to me if i can't find a more substantial reason to believe like those are the good things, but they're not the evidence for the faith. I think. Tell me what you mean. Like that, there's good things, but 
the evidence the, is lacking? What what evidence? What if I mean what if it's just a, a really compelling story? I mean, we had thousands of years to write it and lots of human development to come up with an incredibly compelling story. And I think that there is something unique to the Judeo-Christian trajectory for sure. Like it it got a chance to kind of be reborn multiple times and mature. But what if it's just a really, really compelling story? It's the ultimate in psychology. Um, and the good news, like the good news is good news, but it's not true. And and why should I believe it's true? If if what we have to come back to is a few historical reports about an empty tomb a couple of thousand years ago, that's a little flimsy for me. And it's honestly pretty it it feels pretty weak for for that God to require that that I hinge a life altering faith on 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 trusting that there was an empty tomb a couple thousand years ago. And that's another that's thing fair. that I come back to. That's fair. That that there is not God has not made himself enough obvious. I don't think so. I I, I appreciate that. Um you know, in the Bible there's there's a few different forms of revelation. One is the book of scripture, but that's the first revelation or the second revelation and not the final revelation. Like we don't believe the, the word of God is the Bible. We believe the Bible bears witness to the word of God. Big difference. Like Mm -hmm. Jesus is the word made flesh, but the first revelation is creation. And according, I mean, according to Christian tradition and one of the things that's interesting, and this is, this is that 800 page book that I've mentioned on this podcast before and we've talked about in that little secret Facebook group that we have. Um, it's this guy, a secular oh, age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah remember mm-hmm. this? So um, one of the things he said, he lays out a story. So his first very – his first paragraph is, what do we mean when we say a secular age? Well, basically, um, he, he's trying to answer the question 500 years ago it would be almost impossible to not believe in God. And yet today, it's not only possible, it's incredibly likely. How did this happen? And he tells, he says that most people tell themselves a subtraction story where we slowly, you know, we okay, we used to believe in elves and dragons and fairies, and now we hmm. know better. Like, we, those things don't exist, we don't believe in them, so we, but he said it's actually not a subtraction story, it's an addition story. Um, that replaces one set of highly um, of faith claims with another set of faith claims, and everything that's negative, you'll, you'll find the same kind of uh, religious commitments in this one. So, like, you know, there's new orthodoxies and new hierarchies and new all. Well, basically, here's what he's saying: we perceive the world differently. We live in the world differently than our ancestors 500 years ago. 
we are much less modest with what we think human beings can do with their minds. Um, and we also are much less open to the physical world and its realities, including its spiritual realities. And uh, he's not trying to say this is bad. He's not. He's just trying to explain it. Um, in fact, he's actually a fan of secularism, even though he's a Catholic. He doesn't want to go back to you know the 1500s. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things he says is that you know, like, uh, it's not that the spiritual realities aren't there. I mean, just globally speaking, that's kind of European centric. Um, it's you know, people in all kinds of other places, and and it, they have doctors and you know, x-ray machines and all those kind of things, but they realize there's a dimension to reality that Western people tend to just dismiss. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he would say, like for example, um, do you remember a few years ago there was a super red blood moon? Yeah. You remember this? Yeah. Okay, if you if you lived in the 1500s, it would be one of the major things that happened in your life. Mm-hmm. And as a pastor, I would have been slammed on that the month after that. And the questions would have been, what does this mean? Should we get pregnant now? Should we not get pregnant now? Um, if your church was shrinking in the 1500s, you wouldn't try to go out and hire a young preacher. To bring in the masses, you would try to go get the bones of Peter or something, mm-hmm. because they lived in a much more enchanted world. And what he's saying we did was we disenchanted the world, and so we basically buffered ourselves or closed the the dome to where all all the only thing that's true is the stuff that we can taste and see and touch. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not quite following how that goes along with the, the addition versus subtraction. I mean, I feel like the buffering is sort of subtracting what's outside that buffer. Is the, is the addition like we have created maturing an armor. or we're cre- no, he, that's, that's he the says addition. That, right. Yeah. So we is have the, created the, like this way of I see. protecting ourselves that is, um, uh, very effective, apparently. Um, although he would also, I think, would say things like, you know, it's not that these realities or the symptoms of these spiritual dimensions are not still in play. It's just that we use different language today, you know, addictions, you know. And, mm-hmm. and then Richard Beck, who you know, do you know Richard? Yes. So one of the interesting things about secularism is that uh, there is a really strong correlation between societies becoming more secular and also having much more mental health problems. And, you know, you can't say causation, but there's a strong correlation. And mm-hmm. so like uh, in Scandinavia and Western Europe, the places that are the highest secular uh, have more suicide um anxiety, depression, all these kind of things. And Richard is a psychologist, so he's saying this is the chalk outline around the body of God. 
he calls it the ache. Mm-hmm. Like, um, what do you what do you think about that? Um, yeah. So losing losing sense of the very real spiritual world, the um, transcendent has these negative, these like tangible negative effects for us. Yeah, that's that's totally fine. I mean, the the spiritual world provides a lot of a lot of hope. Um, so in the and, secular or in a non secular age, it doesn't just provide hope. I mean, it's also terrifying, right? Well, yeah, there's two. There's that too. I mean, I would say that 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 is at least a that's direction, that's guidance in some way, and having some sort of having a mission or having some sort of direction or at least something you're running away from, something to be afraid of, gives you gives you something to be doing. Um, I got to kill a weekend kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that having, having purpose, I mean, most people would agree that having some sort of purpose in your life is a bit of an antidote to, to depression and mental illness. Maybe, can you see that? Yeah. But can you see the positive side there outside of mental health? Like for example, I, Paul in his thing on our battle is not against flesh and blood. He, he is actually, doing the opposite of what we think he's doing. He is trying to keep us from demonizing other people. He He's saying, you know, your battle's actually with these spiritual realities, not with people. And so I, what I'm seeing a lot of today in our increasingly secular world is demonizing people, that we we make people into the into monsters and we fight with people instead of for people. So I, I just think there's another level to that besides just, you know, yeah, it could give your life meaning. I think it actually, it, it, it doesn't always, but I think it gives you the resources to be able to enter into not getting your way better, into politics better, um, into marriage better. Tell me about the, what do you mean about the secular secularization leading to demonizing people? So I told this to Travis, our mutual friend, the other day, but there's a guy named Leslie Newbingen who uh, you may have heard of, a missionary in India for 30-plus years. He comes back to Britain 20 years ago, uh, more than 20 years ago, in the 90s or maybe 80s, and he's like, oh, my goodness, uh, Britain needs missionaries. You guys had me going over there, but – and he said um, – so he's like a pretty good – futurist almost like he just sees the writing on the wall in post-christian mm-hmm. europe and i think america is behind post-christian europe but catching up and he says here's what my take is i think the new religion of the west is going to be politics it's not going to be that uh they become irreligious it's going to be that they become a new kind of religious and that it's going to be politics and i found that really kind of um insightful prophetic because i don't know what your facebook feed looks like on election years but mine's not pretty and And by religion are you just talking about like what what gives your life meaning or so religion it comes from the latin word to bind together yeah so um everybody's religious and that doesn't mean everybody goes to church but everybody tends to have a kind of North Star that they organize their life around. And 
Um, so there, everybody wants to feel some kind of like justification about their existence. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And that, that's, that's what he's saying. But I, I mean, I would use kind of language like worship the same way that the atheist David Foster Wallace uses it. Um, everybody worships. And if you worship beauty, you're always going to feel like you might be ugly. If you worship intelligence, you're going to feel like you're not smart enough. You know, that kind of way of to, you know, to check a box that says I am not religious or I am, I do not worship is just, I think it's not within the realm of the human condition. Um, do you agree with that or find that compelling or I I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if I agree with the worship part, but the religion part, I mean, I think that, yeah, we find something that uh, I'm going to go back and say that gives us meaning, but that we organize our life around that we form tribes around. And there's a bit of a chicken or egg thing there, but uh, yeah, I think, I think I would totally buy that. I'm not sure about the worship part that have to, flesh that one out a little bit more to get a sense of that. You know, I guess, I don't know. We always get pretty deep into the weeds here. I'm thinking about the missionary you're telling me about coming back and saying that politics are going to be the new religion. And the place that my mind goes is maybe in, maybe in other places, just because of living conditions, they had gotten to the point where they could have new things new things to worry about, new things to fight about. And there wasn't a need to just survive and just have water and food. Um, but like the hierarchy of needs uh, thing? I guess maybe. Um, I, I don't want to say too much because I, I don't know. I don't know tribal stuff. You know, Travis would probably be a lot better on that. Um, but I imagine, I mean, Tribes, animistic tribes, they're probably organized around um, mostly survival needs. Um, and uh, and I feel like in uh, this guy returning back to London, he's there's there's less of a need to just survive and you can your time worrying about other things and forming different tribes that don't fulfill just immediate water and food needs. So yeah, yeah, hierarchy of needs thing. Yeah, that's interesting. That could be. But that's totally speculative. I'm, I'm reading Nubingen through the line of like, you know, America in the 2010s mm-hmm. and and today. So it, it just sounds... I, real to me I, I do think that people are more likely to preach to you about why their political guy is is great or yours is evil than they are about christianity mm-hmm. oh yeah sure that yeah to our shame uh i you know one of the things about church to christ that i loved um and it's we we've lost a lot of it but it was that we were Anabaptists, so we wouldn't. There was no flag in our auditoriums. Mm-hmm. Um, we 
we would pray for a Democrat president as much as we would pray for a Republican president, or if you're in the North, a Republican president, as much as we'd pray for a Democrat president. But, um, and I, like I vote for Jesus of Nazareth every four years. Uh, so, you know, like I, I, is that literal? That's, Is that what you do? Yeah, I'll write them in. Do you I'll write go them to in. the poll and you write them mm-hmm. in? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the only reason I wouldn't do that is because it always lands me on jury duty, but I, I'd do it anyway. Like, yeah. Um, I I like um, I like the Christian kind of the, the, the people of God are God's politic. You know, you're not mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to fix the brokenness in the world. Um, but you can show the world a different way by the way you care for each other and embody the love of God. Um, anyway, that that's my, you know, little sales talk. Just come on back, Adam. Come back. Come be a part <laughs> I of do. I do think that if everybody lived as a Christian the way I came to understand Christianity and like the waning days of my faith, that it would be a much better place. I mean, I think it's, I think it's better than, than the average. I I can't speak much on other religions, but I think it's better than where we are right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think when we had our conversation previously, I got into Nietzsche and yeah. um, I, I later, you know, I, I said I sounded like a jerk and was like, man, I don't – especially because if Christianity is not true, then it's not true. And you don't want to prop up like, hey, you should you should really believe it or try to believe it um, because it's it does these good things in the world. But one of the things – I'd be interested on your take is, have you ever heard of Peter Singer? Yeah. Um, I, I don't Ethicist. have much, I know. Yeah. I so remember reading some stuff about animal rights, I think. So um, Peter Singer is an animal rights activist. He's also a, a Princeton utilitarian ethicist. Um, and basically what utilitarian ethic, you've heard the trolley, the, yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. So he's the, He's saying we need to maximize the most happiness for the most people, but he rejects the Christian faith and and theism, and because of that, he says human beings have no like central place in the world. So, for example, animal rights are equally as important as you know mm-hmm. human rights. In fact, he says what we need to do is figure out a definition of personhood that can apply to the majority of people. Um, and so I'm, I'm bringing this up cause I know you're a pediatrician now and, um, I think Peter Singer is a contemporary version of Nietzsche's ethics and I don't think he's going to be the last one. Mm-hmm. So he, he basically says like if a child is handicapped or if a young baby is born handicapped, um, because utilitarian speaking, that's not going to lead to a fullness of life as he defines it. And um, it's going to be a drain on the family um, or older people who are a drain, you know, those kind of things um, that they cease to have personhood and right to life. 
what what's your initial take on Peter Singer's kind of like <laughs> brutal? I mean, this brutal. Take is, this is. This is a terrifying conversation here. Um, okay, so gut reaction is that there's not a discrete personhood, and if we want to say that somebody is some something, some being is more or less a person or more or less valuable for some reason, then I could possibly follow along with that. Um, but then you've got to define what what gives you that value i always say like when you lose somebody when somebody dies you know to me dying does nothing to the person who passed away it does something to the people who who lost that person and i'm not going to get into the game of quantifying the suffering of one person who loved someone versus a million people who loved does that make that person more or less of a person um but i but i do think that God, I'm going to get in trouble. I do think that there is a different value to to some lives potentially, and you at least need to sit down and have that kind of pragmatic thought about it. That's um, what Peter Singer I, does. It sounds really. I know it's does okay because like the way you're describing it sounds really really discreet and dangerous to me and like eugenicist. Um, but I mean, I'll be honest, I am not anti-abortion, um, for, for some of those utilitarian reasons. And I don't see the fetus inside a woman's body as, um, as fully a person in the way that you and I are. And I think that the loss there only primarily only occurs to the woman bearing the child and you know maybe maybe the man but not a lot of other people like we see we see protests about about abortion but i i don't see, see people suffering in pain because of somebody else's abortion the way you would because of the loss of a person so that's to say that opens the door to me to say that something with the same genetic makeup as me could have less of a less of a personhood um and i'm definitely not going to jump into animal rights in the same way that that peter singer would i think different animals have different levels of consciousness and awareness of pain and awareness of potential future suffering um like in our house we uh, we don't buy pork from the store we don't eat pork at at restaurants, there's a local farm that we buy some from because we know that that pigs are more intelligent animals than like cattle are or than chickens are. Um, do you think they know how good bacon tastes? Do they know that? I don't think they know, but I think they would love it if they could. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> how cruel. It's, sorry, that was really dark. Um, no, I, and so I, we, we put a little bit of a value a varying value on on lives there. Um, That's interesting. So the Council of Nicaea in three hundred, you know, three hundred something, they they come together and they're trying to figure out what does it mean that God became a person, and what does it mean that God didn't just become a person, but him a Jewish poor person, and died the common death of the lowest. 
And because before that, persona was a Latin word that meant standing before the law. Like you had a legal standing before Rome. And most people did not have a persona. You could not even be tried at court because you did not have a persona. Um, but because of the Council of Nicaea and them realizing that Jesus, cho- God came to live like this, the definition of personhood was radically and democratically expanded to everyone. Every human being made in the image of God now has a personhood. We believe now in Western civilization in a thing called human rights that is directly descended from the Council of Nicaea and these kind of like theological understandings. And I think the challenge for secular humanists, um, and like I'm on the same team. We're on the same team. I think secular humanists have deeply Christian values. This is what Nietzsche would say and what Peter Singer is trying to get you to push back against. Like, come on, stop, stop playing that game. I think the challenge for secular humanists going forward, not not now and not for the next maybe three or four decades, but will be which – I mean honestly, like black lives matter. Which lives matter? Like are we – what does it mean to be a person? Because I think Jesus' people will always hold to this, and, and again – I know Christians and you know Christians who are jerks and they're not smoking what they're selling, but at least this is what they ought to hold to. This is one of the one of the things one area is is it true and the other area for people who have, you know, kind of lost the faith of their childhood for a variety of reasons is what kind of world are y'all gonna create? I don't think secularism is gonna win the day. I actually think it's in decline way much more than um Christianity is just globally speaking. Um, but I think secularism is going to win the Western institutions for the next few decades. Do you think, if you think that secular secularism is, is waning, um, I mean, I know Christianity is what is, what is surging just apathetic Christianity? No. So like globally speaking, Christianity isn't waning. It's, it's doing great. Okay. Uh, Islam and Christianity are like, there's more Christians in China than there are members of the communist party. Um, there, there is, you know, in the hub of Christianity is the global South. Um, like in America, like atheism is primarily a white male phenomenon. Um, because and and honestly, the, this book, A Secular Age, would say. And by the way, I'm not trying to like throw shade on white men. I is a white man, but uh, a secular age would say it's because this is a certain way of inhabiting the world that we have like culturally done for 500 years, and it's prevented us from like experiencing God and maybe the world as it truly is. So, like. God is not like something that you can put under the scientific microscope, right? Like an example of this is communion. Mm-hmm. 300 years ago, the biggest thing was like arguing about how communion changes. And then we, you know, like we basically said it doesn't. It's just a cracker. It's a snack that is a symbol. 
And I think Christians throughout the world and throughout history would say, no, it's not. It's a meal that is a miracle. Um, and you can put it, you can put the bread under the microscope before and after it is prayed for and consecrated and it'll look the same. I'll grant you that. But, uh, if you would have put the bread that Jesus multiplied to feed the 5,000 under a microscope on that day, I think it would have all looked like bread. I mean, it's a different way of like imagining the world because the world is not just this raw thing that we're just kind of like, it's just the facts. It's, it's also the way we are perceiving and the way we are tending to it. And the Bible and the Christian tradition would say, uh, God is not just this like clockmaker who stepped away. It's no, it's like in him we live and move and have our being. And and but in that same passage, Paul, when he says, In him we live and move and have our being, in the same breath, he says, In the past, God has allowed people to be ignorant of him, but now he has revealed himself. So it's possible that we live and move and have our being in God, and yet at the same time that we're not attending to that and that we're ignorant of that fact. You know that it's not important to me to disprove Christianity. I have right. no, I have yeah, no yeah. stake in that. Um, to me, it's just, it's just too easy to see a world where we, in a completely like secular humanist mindset, um, where we still know such a small bit of all the truth there is to know, like every, everything that could be known, we know just this tiny, tiny sliver of a fraction of it. Um, and then to take what, what little observations that we have of truth in the world and, and you can draw lines together like a conspiracy theorist and say that this points to whatever you want it to point to. And, and I think that there is, there's massive amounts of human psychological truth in the Christian story and that it provides tremendous amounts of hope and it really understands the human situation in a unique way um, that still doesn't necessitate to me that it's that that this that the story that 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 like that the word of god is true like the word of god being something separate from the text that the christian tradition and the christian story is pointing to the word of God. Well, that, that story understands something about the human situation, but I don't necessarily think that the, the word of God it's pointing to is true. Do you think, um, it, what, what it sounds to me, and I like that conspiracy theory angle because I wonder if we're all doing conspiracy theories on some level. I mean, with my new, with my new child here, she's two weeks old and we try to nitpick every little day. So if she's got a great night, we think about what are all the different things we did. We used this this bottle or we didn't use bottles that day. We only did breastfeeding. And then we used this particular pacifier. We didn't use a pacifier. We used the swaddle or we didn't. We used some Mylicon. We didn't use that last night. And we just try to come up with what are all the little things. And probably she's just a baby and she's kind of a turd. <laughs> Like that, that's kind of what it comes down to, but, but we want that meaning. 
I, I think human beings are meaning-making people, and what I appreciate about what you just said is it's modesty. It it did feel like I, I think one of my problems often is I feel like I may overreach um, past humility. Like I I might have more than confidence in Jesus. I might have arrogance in it. Hmm. And and so I appreciate you you responding that way because I am just even to my own story I'm just a creature and I could be wrong like my my brain cannot understand the infinite you know even if you don't believe in God the infinite universe that's out there like we don't understand 95% about dark matter and that's the majority of universe um so i appreciate the modesty in that let me can i ask a couple of questions just as kind of wrapping it up is there anything you miss about like church god faith jesus uh oh god i mean i miss miss so much of it i miss the fellowship of the church i don't know you know when you're in school you're forced to be with these people and you don't initially love all of them, but they can become your best friends for whatever reason. Like all of my best friends in my life are not people that I would have just like picked out of the catalog of friends. I love but you're it. forced to be with them and you're forced to love them. Um, and I think there's something about, I think that's how humans are made to have relationship. I don't think we're made to pick our soulmates and, and, pick the ultimate friends for us, but we're, we're made to, um, to create relationships. Um, I miss worship. I don't know what it, what it was, but when I really believed in, I was worshiping, you know, it was a great feeling. I love music. Maybe that that's what it came down to, but, but I really miss that. I miss having, um, a sense of meaning. And I definitely have times in my life now where I just think like, what is, what's the purpose of this, of this life? What am I doing? I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm going to work. I'm telling families about putting their babies to sleep on their back and telling the kids not to drink and, and to not have sex and then to wear condoms and to not drink juice and just doing these things over and over and over. And ultimately like, what's the point of it all? And within Christianity, I, I feel like there was a, that I just had a sense of, sense of meaning more than, more than I may now. Um, so those, I, I'm, yeah, I miss those things a lot. I think I've gotten much more, um, much more materialistic in in my life i think i was happier not seeking out material pleasure um as a christian than i am now and maybe that's you know trying to find some other some other sort of meaning i don't think i'm like crazy about that but i think it's it's more than i ever i I would have ever thought I could have become. I mean, going from going from assuming that I'm going to make a youth minister's salary to being in a family where my wife and I are both 
pediatricians and like pediatricians are not like surgeons, but, but we do fine. And to still have like, to worry about money when I thought I was going to make so much less than I do now. And, and I feel ashamed of myself sometimes that I, that I, that I worry about money being so blessed as we are now. And blessed. And that's what? What? You're using you're I, using words <laughs> from your childhood, man. <laughs> and so I think that um, I think that that I'm I don't know I, I I miss not being materialistic. I guess if you were a Jewish Orthodox person and you walked up to your rabbi and you said, "I don't think I believe anymore." The first question the rabbi would ask you is, are you still keeping kosher? Um, because the it's, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's a way of life. And I think Jesus mm-hmm. was really clear on this. And one of the things European Christianity did was make it more an intellectual thing. Like you're a brain on a stick, not... But Jesus, you know, they, the followers were called the way they, you know, embodied a kind of life that had ideas, sure, but it was, it was not just the ideas, it was the life that they lived. Um, has there any part of you, and again, I, we live in different states, I'm not trying to like grow my church, or what, it's not my church, but I'm not trying to grow the church I work at. Uh, is there any part of you that's thought about like, trying to live it still even if intellectually you're not there no not in a long time i tried when when i moved back to dallas after leaving my youth ministry position in phoenix after seminary i kind of tried just empty yeah i went to i went to a couple of different episcopalian churches when i was there and it felt empty to me and the people I was meeting honestly didn't seem like that it was a social club. There wasn't, um, there, they didn't feel like any church behind it. So mm. it, that's pretty much when I, when I gave up on that, I think that's the last time I was at church Yeah. other than like, you know, well, I, I go with my families. Does that does that ever feel meaningful when you go with your families, family, um, family? I meant family. Yeah. Um, not really, because that's not my that's not my group. It's, yeah. you know what you know. It's funny. It's making me remember. I I kind of tried to force that with with my parents' church when they were in Fort Worth. They had a Methodist church they went to. And they had a great community there, and I just I kind of tried to force because I was really seeking out that that community and fellowship, but it still it didn't I don't know it didn't feel the same. But in terms of living living the life, in as much as like I will never be able to divorce myself from the Judeo Christian morals that I've been brought up in, and that I think are largely very good. Um, I, I try to live that life every day, but probably not in the way that you're asking. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, 
I appreciate that. I think you'll be a, a better human being in the world because of Jesus of Nazareth. And again, that's an example of me overstating something that I can't. I, but I feel I feel really strongly. I've read a lot of history books, and um, I think it I think it's true. Um, I I told you offline once that my one of my frustrations with post Christian people, uh, which is not has not proven to be accurate in these podcasts, but one of my frustrations with post Christian people is that they often strike me at least on. Facebook post or, you know, Twitter or social media or sometimes conversations, they strike me as a teenager living in their mother's basement, blogging and tweeting crap about their mom. Mm -hmm. And it's like, then they're like, hey, bring me some groceries. Uh, Like living in the benefits of the men and women who have gone before us who weren't perfect but who, you know, started the hospital maybe that you work at. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a a saint on the name of your hospital or, you know, something like that. Started the universities that we went to, um, gave the world things like human rights. And um, and I, I, I sense in you a different kind of spirit. And I really, in all the podcasts I've done, um, so... I don't know if I've said this on another podcast, but I, w- I want to say this to you as a gift. I hope it's received that way. Um, it's also a potentially problematic thing for me to say as a pastor, but I think it's true. Um, G.K. Chesterton, I read this 10 years ago, and I wept when I read it because I was in a season of doubt and... Um, and I've told it to so many friends, like people that we know who have lost faith that we both care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's helpful, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it opens the door just a little bit to where they reconsider the faith of their childhood. But that's not my goal. My goal is just to bless you. So G.K. Chesterton wrote about Jesus on the cross and him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, the Christian faith is the only one and for which one brief instant, God himself was an atheist. And that moved me so much because there's a a British person, I'm going to say a bad word here, but it's a quote, okay? Um, there's a British atheist who says God doesn't exist, the bastard. And behind that is so much, like, longing. Like, I can't believe I want to believe. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I want to believe. And if if that's you or anybody listening, one of the things that, I want you to know is is this is not on the margins of Christian theology. It's right in the middle of it. Christians were first known as atheists. That was the first thing they were known as. Hmm. Atheism itself has its roots in the Christian tradition. And um, I find one of the most helpful things is that if you want to believe at all, God himself can meet you there.
I mean, I, I think that's Jesus on the cross. You cannot go to a place where Jesus didn't descend. <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't. I don't think we have to make this any any longer. Or get into a another tangent. I do feel like I wanted to for quite a long time, and so either I didn't want it enough, or or he didn't meet me. Randy Harris told me once, if if somebody wants to believe, the Christian faith says that's enough. So, um, I think that's right, man. I I'm so grateful for you taking an hour plus to talk with me, Adam. I really care for you as a human being. I think you're a super good dude, and I'm grateful for our paths having crossed so many different times and places. Um, I want to I want to add one thing because you kind of mentioned how your opinion of those of us who have left the faith has changed. Um, I feel like people who do more in depth theological training, may, maybe a Bible degree, but like an MDiv or something, come out as one of three people. You you reject the criticism, and you further just dig your heels in to whatever you believe. Um, you come out like me pretty much and you're, and you deny it or you're on your way to denying it. I think there's people like you that come out with the more, a more profound faith than I always think of a friend of both of ours, Brian Harrison, um, who is a great example of that and you, um, and those of us in that middle group of, of agnosticism or atheism, um, it's probably easiest, easy for us to discount the the seasons of doubt that you may have gone through, that we just see the faithful person and don't see the depth to, to what doubt you may have worked through or how you may have suffered through your faith in the past. And we just see kind of who you present yourself as like, um, and don't, and probably don't give you the credit that you deserve for, working through your faith in exactly the same way that we have just different, slightly different outcomes. Thanks, Adam. That, that means a lot. And yeah, if you ever want to have a doubt session, I, I'm, I'm with you. Well, I really appreciate you. Much love, Adam. Thanks for including me in this. This, is, this has been fun and, and I would love to do it again. Thanks for listening to Bonafide. If you like what you've heard, please share with your friends and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts.